Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, and I am the host of New Books Network, New Books in Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Phil Proctor, who is the co-author with Brad Schreiber of Where's My Fortune Cookie, which is his memoir. Phil, thanks for being here. Well, I'm not really there, am I? I'm uh, in in the uh, unsunny California. I'm wondering if you could start by talking a little bit about why you decided to write your memoir now and what was it about this moment that you thought it was important to share about your experiences with Firesign Theater as well as your life? Yes, it's a very good question. Uh, about I almost maybe two and a half years ago now, Brad Schreiber, who is a friend of mine and uh, who writes, uh, who, who taught for a while a uh, course on how to write comedy, put out a, a couple of books about how to write comedy, but also uh, put out some very serious books. One about the life of Jimi Hendrix, and another one recently about uh, Patty Hearst and the Symbionese Liberation Army, uh, and called Revolution's End, which has gotten quite quite a bit of attention. And so um, when he approached me one morning at breakfast with the idea of uh, co-authoring a book about my life, uh, I thought, well, you know, uh, he's, he will probably be the person who can motivate me to finally write down uh, or at least talk about my extraordinary uh, 65-year career in show business and my 50-year career with the Firesign Theater. So it was kind of a motivation for me. I've wanted to write about my life for a while, uh, and I've always been too busy living it to be able to uh, you know, isolate myself and tell my story. So Brad would come over here to my house and sit in the chair that I'm looking at over here to my left with a little tape recorder, and he would ask me questions, and I would start talking. And of course, uh, because I don't have a really good chronological sense of life, uh, I, I tend to live in the moment and turn my attention to the um, uh, the projects that I'm doing at the time, um, uh, or, or write about, you know, at the time. Uh, I had to go down and <laughs> pull out a bunch of diaries and uh, day books from the many years that the Firesign and my uh, spinoff partner Peter Bergman and I worked together as Proctor and Bergman, and try to chronologically uh, figure out what I was doing when, where I was, where the fire sign was what we were doing and basically uh, I got from that um, an overall uh, arc of my life up to now I'm, I'm going to turn 78 on July 28th of this year I'll be over in the United Kingdom actually on my way up to Scotland to do the old whiskey trail and then visit the fringe festival and see some friends performing in Edinburgh uh, but the fact of the matter is that 
the the overarching story of my life is one of uh, strange coincidences that occurred that led me on a particular path towards the point where I am right now and where where strange occurrences and coincidences uh, and serendipity is still happening in my life to kind of focus what it is that I should be doing and uh, and why I'm here on the earth while I still am. So basically to tell people who may not know what the fire sign theater is, uh, since that was such an amazing and long uh, part of my life, which is actually still going on, I, w- I will explain that back in the 19, uh, late, well, I'd say the mid-60s, 1960s, um, I found myself in Los Angeles and I connected up in a strange way, which I may talk about, with Peter Bergman, who was a classmate of mine at Yale, who had written lyrics for several musicals written by Austin Pendleton that I starred in when I was uh, a uh, freshman and a sophomore at Yale. Uh, Anyway, uh, he, it turns out, was doing a show at KPFK, listener-supported radio station in Los Angeles, called Radio Free Oz that he had created, and he was known as the Wizard of Oz. And it was a late-night call-in uh, uh, a new culture show. It was um, a new new age talk show is the way I would de- I'd describe it. He would read tarot cards for listeners and he would talk people down from bad acid trips and he really created an extraordinary name for himself in the Los Angeles area. Uh, so I, I met the night that I went down to, to play with him for the first time. I met these two other guys, Phil Austin and David Osman, and we discovered that we were all fire signs. I'm a Leo. Uh, Peter is a Sagittarian. David is a Sagittarian, and Phil is an Aries, unfortunately. <laughs> so we were all fire signs, all uh, uh, writers and actors and poets and, and yakkers, and we found that we uh, had a, a tremendous ability to improvise on the spot, on the radio, to this vast audience of, of wonderful, crazy people who were staying up late at night to hear Peter and his show and his guests. And so we all we, we became different identities. We played different people that Peter would interview. He was like a twisted straight man to our crazy characters. And we, we showed movies on the radio. We had the Oz Film Festival. The thing just like grew and grew and grew until uh, eventually uh, our fans wanted to see us. And so we started performing. And because of all of this, we got a record contract at Columbia uh, for four albums. And the first album was called Waiting for the Electrician or Someone Like Him, in which we actually created the long-form comedy album which had never existed before. Uh, and we, and that meant that we, we, we made a, a comic surrealistic story. We were inspired by uh, The Goons in England, <clears throat> which was a wonderful long-running radio show starring Spike Milligan and Peter Sellers and David Seacombe, uh and very surrealistic, very crazy, wonderful uh, nutty sound effects and, and music. And, and inspired by that, we decided to do the same kind of a thing from an American perspective. And uh, we were successful. We were basically successful because a fellow named John McClure at Columbia 
uh, went into a meeting after our first record had gone uh, had been released and was you know doing moderate business and said you've got to keep these guys signed because they're inventing a new kind of comedy and Columbia Records is is the place where they should be doing it. So here's how he did it. He was the head of the spoken arts division of Columbia at the time and he said so I'll sign them to a spoken arts contract and what that did was it gave us unlimited free studio time in exchange for a reduced royalty okay so that meant that we we could play in the sandbox as long as we wanted and our parents wouldn't call us you know call us back for dinner so we had the run of the state of the art studios uh, at Columbia and later in other places when we started working off campus but when we started we started in what were essentially radio studios which was perfect because we were all children of the radio era and we were all absolutely committed to bringing audio comedy and, and audio techniques into the 20, 20th century okay and so as the technologies grew, so did our ability to make even more complex albums. And the, the second album was called How Can You Be in Two Places at Once When You're Not Anywhere at All? And it's a, it's a funny, interesting story of kind of going through the uh, America at the time uh, and, and, and taking a twisted, surrealistic look at, at the state of our society and our country back in like 1967, 68. But we, uh, in those days, children, records had two sides. Okay, <laughs> there were these these vinyl discs <clears throat> with with a, a side one and side two, and we realized we didn't have anything for side two. Uh, but we were we were going to do we were on the radio concurrently with this, which is where we developed a lot of our material, and uh, we were going to do a serial. Take off on the uh, detective stories, the um, uh, detective noir stories that were so popular on the radio and in the movies. <clears throat> uh, and so uh, we, brought, we we wrote a pilot called Nick Danger, Third Eye, America's Only Detective, and we took it into the studio on Sunday afternoon uh, to the radio studio, and we were going to introduce it uh, as a running serial. But we discovered that we'd been locked out of the radio station because it had been sold overnight and was now doing, like, you know, Hasidic cowboy records or something. And so we said, well, hey, well, let's just put this on the, on the other side of the record. And that turned out to be the best decision we ever made because Nick Danger Third Eye was accessible to people. They knew, everybody knew that the detective, the hard-boiled detective story, and we were doing it from a crazy, psychedelic, flipped-out, surrealistic perspective, uh, and, and so it became immensely popular and really greased our wheels for the, the, you know, the rest of our tenure uh, making records at Columbia. So the third record was called Don't Crush That Dwarf, Hand Me the Pliers, which is a reference really to smoking dope. In the in the sixties, when a a, 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 a marijuana <clears throat> when a marijuana cigarette would get down to the point where you could hardly hold it without burning your fingers, you would use something to you know to 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 grab onto it, uh, like a pair of pliers or something, and then you could finish it to the very end. Uh, you know, so anyway, that became a very popular uh, album, and it was about 
channel surfing. The Firesand Theater, one of the things about the Firesand Theater, which, which I write about extensively in the book, Where's My Fortune Cookie, available at Amazon.com, and also as a podcast, which was just premiered two weeks ago at the Here Now Audio Festival in Kansas City, Missouri, and it's available at podbean.com, podbean.com, as uh, the Proctor podcast of Where's My Fortune Cookie? Me reading it, yes, imbuing it with my own personality and, and sound effects and music. So it's, it's, it's uh, not exactly like a narration of my book. It's an exploration of my book. Because just as the book is uh, copiously illustrated with all kinds of pictures of my 60-year my career, actually of my 78-year-old life, because I start with baby pictures uh, of, my, of, of uh, being born in Goshen, Indiana, of Amish and Irish ancestry, with this bizarre ability to be able to, to hear music and sing it back even as a baby. Uh, uh, the, that's illustrated as well. Anyway, I'm getting a little bit off the track, but that, that's the story of my life, really. So anyway, Don't Crush That Dwarf Hemi the Pliers became a, a, a super mega hit for us. And it was so popular that uh, many, 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 many years later, the Library of Congress inducted it into their historical or uh, hysterical recordings. <laughs> that was about seven years ago. And, uh, and only very recently, in like September of last year, David Osman and I, who are the only two surviving members of the four-man satirical comedy group, the Firesign Theater, were invited down to, the, to perform uh, at the Coolidge Theater at the Library of Congress, a beautiful, beautiful venue, where they announced that they were purchasing the Firesign Theater archives for half a million dollars. Mm. All right. Now, this has not been publicly announced yet because we're in the midst of sending the last of the archives to Washington, ACDC. Uh, and after that is completed, there will be a formal announcement. But I certainly am happy and proud and delighted to be able to announce that to you right now. So anyway, that album was very successful. <clears throat> and then it was followed by an album called I Think We're All Bozos on This Bus. <laughs> And that was an album that predicted the computer revolution in the country. It came out in 1971. And uh, that was so popular that uh, one of our fans, uh, a fellow named Steve Jobs, did a little something with my character, Clem. Here, I'm going to get my cell phone. One second here. Uh, there, there. Okay, this, this is my iPhone. And I'm going to say something to Siri and play it for you. Here we go. This is Worker speaking. Hello. Sorry. I couldn't find oh. this. It's Worker. Okay, wait a minute. Try it again. Come on, Siri. Wake up, Siri. This is Worker speaking. Hello. Hello, Aklem. What function can I perform for you? LOL. Now, Rebecca, do you have any idea what that means? I don't, but I know that I read in your book that it goes along with one of your bits. And I, of <laughs> course, had to, 
I had a course the pull story. out. One of the yeah. stories. The, pull the, out the, my don't phone and do the same thing. <laughs> I think Robozo's on this bus was a story of a disaffected worker, me, Clem, who goes into this future fair that the government has created in order to keep people happy, even though things aren't going as well as they should go. And uh, when I when the computer asked me my you know uh, my name, I hesitate. Uh, Clem, I say, and so I became I become known as a Clem through the entire record. And what I do is that I break into the mainframe computer, which is the direct readout memory, doctor memory, and I plant a virus in the, the government computer uh, that brings down the entire future fair. And the virus is actually in the form of a koan, uh, that, a question, uh, you know, a, a Zen abstract question that the computer cannot answer with a simple yes or no, since all computer language is based on binary thinking, you know, positive and negative. And the question is, why does the porridge bird lay his egg in the air? Okay, and there's a bizarre story in the book about where that came from, but uh, it brings the, the, the whole government uh, uh, illusion to a crashing halt. Now, of course, we don't call it a virus, and I'm not known as a hacker because we were predicting all this stuff, all right? <laughs> but when, when I was doing voices for Pixar movies, uh, I met Steve Jobs, who had bought into the uh, development of the Pixar um, computer animation, uh, which, you know, is so much fun to, to be a part of for so many years. And when I met him, he said, I'm a big fan of yours. Well, I was very touched by this. And of course, he paid us an homage by putting this line, hello, uh, the, the line that I used to break into the computer, to hack into the computer, which is, this is workers speaking, hello, see? <laughs> and so he put that into uh, the iPhone as an homage to the Fireside Theater. Well, as we were going through old pictures uh, to, to, to put into our archives, we have an archivist named Taylor Jessen, who's been working with us for decades now, uh, and he's also produced a lot of material, which is available at firesigntheater.com for any fans or any people who'd like to get to know what Firesign Theater is. Uh, and he's packaged recently a double DVD set of our television appearances and some of our short films, like Everything You Know Is Wrong and The Martian Space Party. Uh, so anyway, uh, he was responsible uh, for looking for pictures and things, and he found an early set of pictures of a Firesign Theater record signing up in Berkeley, California. And who is there with us but a young Steve Jobs. So he really was a fan of ours from the very beginning. And apparently that this record inspired him to continue to develop his computer uh, um, technology in the future, which is just amazing to me. And that this is typical of the kind of, of intricate connections that I've had really all my life uh, doing the thing that I love the most, which is performing. You know, I've, I've, I started on um, Broadway and off-Broadway in New York, and one of the shows that I did called The Amorous Flea uh, brought me out to California, where I won a Theater World Award uh, that Paul Newman presented to me, of all people, which is delightful, because uh, I had a connection with him through a girlfriend. It's all in the book, Where's My Fortune Cookie? It's so strange. Uh, I could go on for hours talking about it, but you could also 
also hear me talk about it if you go to podbean.com and listen to my podcast, which, which and there'll be a new episode every Friday. So if you want to sign on, I think it's 99 cents an episode or something like that. Okay. So we were practically giving it away. Anyway, uh, when I was out in California, I, uh, I learned to drive and I, I, you know, if you move the letters of Los Angeles around, it spells legs on sale. Okay. And that, that captures the, the, the ethos of the city perfectly. But when I came back out again, oh yeah. And I went back to New York to star on a, to be featured in a Broadway show called the time for singing big musical. And after that, I understudied Brandon DeWilda in a play called a race of hairy men by Evan Hunter and Brandon DeWilda and I had been fated to meet for, for forever. When I was a child actor at Alan Stevenson School in New York, playing the female leads in the Gilbert and Sullivan production, annual Gilbert and Sullivan production, uh, I was asked by my uh, second grade teacher, Mrs. Green, who was a close friend of Helen Hayes, a very, very famous American actress, to understudy Brandon DeWilda in a play that she was doing called Mrs. McPing. And at the time, I was, believe it or not, shy, even though I was, you know, talented. And I thought, no, I don't want to do that because that would take me out of school. And, you know, and I don't know. I don't want to do that, which that would have changed my life. But anyway, so many, many decades later, I ended up understudying Brandon DeWilda in another play. And we became amazingly close friends, drove out to California together and connected up with, of all people, Peter Fonda. Uh, and and uh, and started hanging out with him, and he was doing research for a little movie idea he had. Uh, I think it was called Easy Rider. I think they're, they're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the release of that amazing film uh, right now. Okay, and Peter has been in and out of of uh, town here, but anyway. We ended up doing some research for with Peter for that movie. Uh, we went to the Sunset Strip uh, uh, in, in 1968 uh, in order to uh, join a protest of young people against a curfew that they were trying to impose on them uh, to control the anti-Vietnam War demonstrations and the uh, open smoking of pot on the streets of, of Los Angeles. And uh, it resulted in a artificial riot created by the Los Angeles police and the sheriff's department pushing everybody together. And at that, at one point, we all sat down, you know, we shall not be moved. And I sat down on an open issue of the L.A. Free Press. I sat down on Peter Bergman's face, or at least a picture of it. I pulled it out from under my butt and it said, KPFK newsman Peter Bergman interviews returning Vietnam War veterans. And that was my connection to Peter that I talked about at the very beginning of this conversation or this monologue. Uh, that's how I, re re how I reconnected with Bergman because I called in the next day, went down that night and met the other guys and the Firesign Theater was born. <laughs> Well, and one of the things I loved in your book was all those images that you do talk about, like, and that connect to you, but other sort of comics and other actors and people who you met along the way. And just the fact that you, your, your work is sort of situated in this heyday for comedy and these comedians coming up and all of this, which yeah. is wonderful. Yeah, it was a, an amazing time, really. Uh, when we were signed to Columbia Records, <clears throat> Bob Dylan 
was on the label and uh, the Rolling Stones. Uh, it was, the, the fact was, it, it wasn't necessarily they were all signed to Columbia, but we were one crazy bohemian gang uh, at the time. Uh, nobody had had the crazy successes uh, of the uh, of the succeeding years. Everybody was really like starting out, and the record industry was just starting out. So that we were all, you know, friends together. We would hang out together. We'd have parties together. We get stoned together. And uh, and uh, in fact, another interesting little parallel to all of that is that uh, I had a girlfriend named Kathy Cozy, who uh, eventually married John Sebastian, and uh, and she introduced me to uh, Jeremy Clyde of Chad and Jeremy because she had uh, come over from England and she knew all the Stones and all these other wonderful, crazy musician people. And Jeremy Clyde uh, uh, was fascinated by the Firesign Theater and what we were doing. And so he and his partner, Chad, decided to do a concept album called Of Cabbages and Kings. And they hired us to, to do a dramatic comic sequence, kind of a history of war uh, as part of, of their album. And so Jeremy and I became pals, and we shared a house in Encino. This is all in the book, Where's My Fortune Cookie, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> you, can, you can get it at Amazon.com, and, and, it's, it's, and it's got pictures. So, okay, so anyway, we, we had this great house out in Encino, which had an ape cage and a bomb shelter where we kept our pot, and an Olympic-sized swimming pool where we kept our girls. And it was a crazy... Uh, it, it, it was the 60s. It was just a wonderful, wonderful uh, opportunity for experimentation in what we hoped would be a new society. You know, free love, equality of men and women, um, uh, everybody uh, united by in a smoky haze uh, and, 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 and the desire to end war as we know it and to replace the old gray-haired men with new, young, vital people like Bobby Kennedy uh, and John Kennedy, who, of course, were murdered. So, <laughs> you know, it was, a di it was a great time, and it was a difficult, painful, sad time, because the revolution that we wanted to create from inside the society never, never happened. Uh, it was, there was too much opposing it. And there still is, by the way, right. if you haven't noticed. Just a little. Uh, evolution is is very, very slow in this country. Uh, and I'm afraid it looks like in the whole world right now. Uh, we were, you know, we were doing 33 and a third revolutions per minute in making our records. So we were thinking that perhaps it could we could do something that would revolutionize the world in a good way. But we failed. And uh, that's just the way it is. Uh, but I don't. But downers being what they may, uh, the reason why the book is called "Where's My Fortune Cookie" is not just Rebecca because of the all the strange coincidences that you'll read about that led me through my life. Up Which to I point. loved reading. They they were really awesome. <laughs> yeah, and that was something that I kind of discovered as Brad and I were were talking together, uh, uh, and I realized as more and more of these incidents occurred to me uh, how much of an influence it, it really had made on my life. 
Um, and, and now I'm going to describe why the book is called Where's My Fortune Cookie? Uh, it, it, the, the cover of the book is a, a wonderful illustration by a brilliant artist who just passed away named Bob Grossman. Bob Grossman introduced airbrush art to American culture, and he's probably best known for the poster of the twisted plane in the movie Airplane. You know, you remember that the plane is all tied into like a pretzel knot. Mm-hmm. That was Bob Grossman's work. He also did the cover for our album, Don't Crush That Dwarf, Hand Me the Pliers, which depicts each one of us as our fire sign, Leo, two Sagittarians and an Aries. And, uh, and, and he was Peter Bergman's roommate at Yale. OK, so anyway, uh, uh, how did I get off into this? Oh, yeah. So so that's the cover of the book. And it's a picture of Peter and me cowering under a table at a Chinese restaurant. And this was published in Rolling Stone magazine because Peter and I survived a mass shooting back in uh, on Labor Day of 1977 when we were on the road as Proctor and Bergman, which was a, a spinoff half the wits of the Fireside Theater. We performed at the Great American Music Hall up in San Francisco, California, and we went out to get a bite to eat with our friend Bill Alexander, and the only place that was open was this, this very famous restaurant called The Golden Dragon in Chinatown. And we found a parking place right in front of the restaurant. We popped in, and it was like 2.30 in the morning. We ordered something. The waiter said, better order fast. We're going to close soon. Well, little did he know. And I'm just bending over my second cup of soup when I hear bang, bang, crash, crash, scream, scream. And I look up, and I see three Chinese guys, one with a machine gun, one with a pistol, one with a shotgun, and they're shooting up the place and killing people right in front of our very eyes. So I dropped under the table and hid behind the steel column while the shooting went on. Uh, and I, I learned that morning that my second wife, Barbara Samming Sen, Norwegian wife, was pregnant with my child, who is now my 40-year-old daughter, with two grandkids, Bowen and Audrey, who lives five minutes away from me, blessed be. Uh, and, and so I'm cowering under the table thinking, well, am I ever going to get to see my child? Uh, or am I going to die? Or is Peter going to get wounded? Or I am going to get wounded? We have to end our career. What's going to happen? And uh, finally, the shooting ended. And uh, uh, we, we were safe. But Bill had been shot a machine gun slug had ricocheted off the floor, traveled up the heel of his boot, and is still lodged to this very day behind his knee, okay? But we were alive. We have survived. And it was, we learned later that we were in the middle of a gang war between the Joe Fong gang, which was, the, who controlled all the rackets in Chinatown at the time, and the watching, the young Chinese, who were sitting behind us to the left, and none of whom were, were affected, wounded, or shot in this horrendous uh, massacre. Five killed and 11 wounded. At the time, 1977, the worst massacre in American history. I'll just digest that for a minute. But here's the kicker. The entire event had been predicted to me personally by a girlfriend of mine named Sharon about two and a half months before it happened. And the, the way that all happened is absolutely amazing as well, because it all had to do with my excitement over this, this guy named Yuri Geller. Uh, and, 
and the fact that Sharon was working with uh, Andrea Paharic and Yuri Geller at an institute of psychic investigations up in Austin, New York. And when I went up and connected with her again, she told me, she said, you know, I don't like to tell bad things to people, but I think you should know that you and Peter, after a performance, will be involved in a shooting. Uh, it'll be foreigners, and it's kind of like a gang war, and people will be killed and wounded around you, but you and Peter will survive unscathed. All right? But that's not why the book is called Where's My Fortune Cookie? Because when Peter Bergman died about six years ago now, we had several memorials for him, one up north uh, in Washington State and one down at the Electric Lodge in um, uh, uh, Venice, California. And one of our supporters, Gretchen Steiner, who had helped us with uh, when we toured and was you know, a big uh, a patron of the Firesign Theater, she had purchased a whole bunch of fortune cookies with Peter Bergman's name, his date of birth, his date of death, and a title from one of our albums, uh, and gave them out to all of the, 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 the mourners and the people who came to celebrate Peter's life. And after the event was over, I said, that was so great of you, Gretchen, to get us those fortune cookies, you know, because of the Golden Dragon Massacre. And she said, what? I said, you know, the, you know, Peter and I survived a Chinese gangland shooting. It's quite well known. She said, what are you talking about? I said, wait a minute. You, you don't know about our, the gangland shooting? And she said, no. I said, well, why did you get the fortune cookies? And this is what she told me. She said, because Peter... Excuse me. Peter came to me in a dream and said, I never got my fortune cookie. That's what she told me. Yeah. And that's Are like, you there? yeah, I'm here. It's like a great story. And, and it sort of brings in all those little times we, you talk about throughout the book, those times in your life that sort of make those connections and those sort of psychic places in those connections, which is really great. It, uh, it's it's amazing, and really, I <clears throat> I've encouraged people in all the interviews that I've done uh, to to listen to their own inner voices and to follow you know to, to follow the your instincts as much as you possibly can in life. And of course, many interviews that I've interviewers that I've talked to have then later off the air told me amazing stories of bizarre coincidences, dreams, and, and uh, you know, un inexplicable uh, uh, events that happened to them personally in their old li own life that influenced them as well. So I know that I'm not alone in telling my story, but I do want it to, to get out there. Oh, and, and to, to tie in the, uh, uh, the, little, the little tale I told you about, uh, sharing a house with Jeremy Clyde, he just stayed with us here at our home in Benedict Canyon for three days because he is now on tour with Peter Asher of Peter and Gordon since uh, his dear partner Chad uh, is suffering from dementia and can no longer tour as Chad and Jeremy. So it's now Jeremy and uh, Peter. And uh, they did a wonderful nostalgic uh, concert at the uh, McCabe's Guitar Shop, which is a great venue. And then uh, uh, Jeremy did his first solo show 
of a, a bunch of records that he's releasing one a year of called the Bottom Drawer Sessions. Because back in London, in his flat, he found in the bottom drawer of a chest of drawers in his, in his uh, living room a, a, a whole stack of lyrics that he had collaborated to write with a wonderful poet who passed away about two years ago. And he started reading through them and said, you know, these are wonderful. I should write music for them, and I should release them as records. And that's what he's doing. So it's Jeremy Clyde's Bottom Drawer Sessions. You can Google it. They're absolutely wonderful. And while he was here in California, he did his very first solo performance ever in his in his whole life at a place called the Backstage at the Coffee Gallery in Co- in uh, uh, Covina or someplace. La Crescenta, I don't know. I still, I remember, I'm a transplanted Los Angelian like most people are, so I still haven't got all the cities straight, <laughs> right, that make up this megalopolis out here. Uh, in fact, when I first came out, I wanted to reach a friend on the phone, and so I got I got the operator, and I said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm Marsha Magugula, uh in, in Los Angeles. And the, the woman said, no, I don't have a listing for Marsha in Los Angeles, but I have one for her in Ventura. And I went, <laughs> what? You know, <laughs> oh, you mean... Los Angeles is just a fragmented plate with all these different places in it. That was my first lesson. Anyway, uh, I've been here now for a long time, uh, and I've been in in, uh, – I'm still doing crazy things in show business, and and I'm still having a, a good life. Yeah, and you talk, and we've been talking for a while. I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about um, your book. In your book, you're not only talking about the Fire Sign Theater, but you talk about what you're doing sort of now and how you got into voice acting. So that seems to be another transition for you and something that you're working on and something that you've had lots of success with. Yeah, um, I. I was doing all this stuff with the Firesign Theater. <clears throat> I remember I come, I came out of a theater school. I had a, a BA in drama from Yale, and I uh, was doing off Broadway and Broadway uh, musicals and and straight plays and things like that. And uh, uh, and when I came out to, to Los Angeles, as I told you, became involved with the Firesign Theater. That whole career took off, and I started doing you know portraying hundreds of different characters, men and women and all, like, like Monty Python, before Monty Python. Mm-hmm. We were, we, we've been called the Beatles of comedy and the Monty, and America's Monty Python. And they're both, they're both true because we were inspired by the Beatles and we inspired Monty Python. <laughs> and all of us were inspired by the goon shows in England. So anyway, <clears throat> I thought to myself, look, I do all these voices. I should, you know, commercialize this. I should exploit this. So I got myself a commercial agent, a voiceover agent, and I started doing on-camera commercials and voiceovers for radio spots. And, and, and then I got into cartoons. And the first cartoon I did was the Smurfs for Hanna-Barbera. Okay? I was King Gerald in the Smurfs and played a lot of villains and things as well. And, uh, and Hanna-Barbera at the time was like the Disney of Saturday morning television, okay? And they, they, were, they did Richie Rich and the Jetsons and the Flintstones and everything. And so I got to, you know, to, to do voices and all these things, all the while while the Fireside Theater was going on. And uh, eventually uh, I got uh, involved in, with one cartoon that most people probably know me the best for, which is the Rugrats, where I played Howard. Howard DeVille, the father of Phil and Lil, for 14 years. 
and it's still on the air. And I get I get fan uh, requests for for uh, postcards signed 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 pictures from places like Russia and China. I mean, they're playing it all over the world. It's amazing. So that's probably a thing that most people would know me best for. But I also did, as I as I hinted, uh, different voices for games. I'm Dr. Vidic on the uh, Assassin's Creed game, which is, you know, amazingly successful. Mm-hmm. And I played uh, various characters in, in Disney movies and Pixar movies like Finding Nemo, where I'm a seahorse Bob. You're a clownfish, say something funny. And uh, Monsters Incorporated, where I play Charlie, the, um, the the manager of the of the monster that gets the sock on his back, and and on and on and on, uh, using using my voice and the fact that I speak seven languages and can do all kinds of dialects and things. And that led me to a a, a long career in in a thing we call out here looping and dubbing or ADR, automated dialogue replacement, uh, adding voices to movies and television shows, uh, background voices. Because every, every movie and every television show you know, has crowds and various people who, who pop up and say various things, replacing voices. And I did that for like 30 years. And of course, it, it's led to all kinds of wonderful residual uh, effects. <clears throat> Excuse me, let me just clear my throat for a second. <clears> throat> Because my throat is my fortune, and uh, and I also did ro- on camera roles in movies like Sunday in New York with Jane Fonda. That was my first role, and uh, and let's see, mo- uh, a, a Safe Place, Henry Jaglum's first film uh, with Tuesday Wells, Orson Welles, Jack Nicholson, and Gwen Wells. That was fun, okay, and 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 I and occasionally I pop up. Uh, television shows that they're replaying, like All in the Family, where I I, uh, I played a character named Wendell Hornsby, and uh, gosh, you know, if you if you go to that MM and DBBBP uh, site that lists all the movies and things mm-hmm. that people do, you'll see thousands of things that I've been involved in, and it's really an astonishing uh, 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 list, even for me to look at. And I said, oh yeah, that's right, because I started doing a soap opera in New York called The Edge of Night, all right? I, had, I hadn't even graduated from Yale, and I went down and did a, uh, uh, an audition for a juvenile delinquent in The Edge of Night, which was a famous soap opera at the time, all live, by the way. And as I'm walking through Grand Central Station to get my train back up to New Haven, I hear, will Philip Proctor please report to the station master's office? And I stopped in the middle of the, of the Grand Central Station with all these people moving around me. And, and, and they repeated it. Well, Philip Proctor, please report. So I go over to the information booth and I say, I'm Philip Proctor. Where's, where's the station masters? And they point to this open area where there's a whole bunch of conductors sitting at these big old desks with phones in front of them. And I go over there and I say, I'm Philip Proctor. He said, call your agent. <laughs> call my agent. So I called my agent and she said, you got the job. Okay, <laughs> that was my first job in national television, and that's how that's how I learned that I'd gotten it. It's in the book. Where's my fortune cookie? It's all true. It really happened. 
Well, Phil, it's been really great talking to you. And yes, these, these great stories throughout the book about even starting when you were young, 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 a little lad, all the way up through college and your work with the Firesign Theater and then also your work today and many of the people who you've come in contact with because of that. And so, again, now you're also doing your podcast um, that's on podbean.com about Where's My Fortune Cookie. But I want to thank you. We've been talking for a while, so I want to thank you for talking with me again. This was Phil Proctor, who is the co-author with Brad Schreiber of Where's My Fortune Cookie. Thanks, Phil. Thank you, Rebecca. It's uh, And the beat goes on. <laughs> Stay tuned. 